I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be picking up in verse 26. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Luke's introduction. He, He wrote his Gospel to a man named Theophilus in order that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. And, and we have received this gospel for the very same reason. Uh, Luke has given us an, an orderly account. He has gone through and collected eyewitness testimony of those who, who walked with Jesus and heard the teachings of Jesus, for those who were there at the crucifixion of Jesus, who, the, who saw the resurrected Jesus. And now he has put those things together for us that we might learn from them. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the account of uh, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, how God broke 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament by speaking to a priest named Zechariah concerning the birth of his son that would come, John. And now we will see the foretelling of another birth as the same angel who spoke to Zechariah, Gabriel, will now come and speak to a young virgin named Mary. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And out of reverence for God's Word, because this is God's holy Word to us, I want to invite you to stand as I read our passage. God has spoken this Word to His church, and He speaks it to us today. And this is what His Word says. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are not a silent God. You're a God who speaks. And you spoke your word to Mary through Gabriel. The same word that You were speaking to us today. So help us, Lord, not just to revere that Word, not just to admire that Word. Help us to believe and to respond to that Word in repentance and faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
I read the story over the summer of a couple who were celebrating 60 years of marriage. And in recounting how they had reached such a milestone, how they had had such a a long and loving relationship, they shared about how they had made a commitment to one another early on to never keep secrets. But there was one exception. The wife, when they were newly married, had a a medium-sized box that she had placed in their bedroom closet. And she had said to her husband, I want you to promise me that you're never going to open that box. You're never going to look in that box. And for 60 years, her husband kept that promise. But on the evening of their 60th anniversary, his curiosity got the best of him. While his wife was in another room, he he took the box down. he, He opened it up. And inside the box were two pair of mittens and a stack of $5 bills, a large stack of $5 bills. In fact, he counted it, it was $15,000. Right about that time, his, his wife walked in and he was embarrassed. She, though, didn't seem upset. She, she had a grin on her face. And after he apologized, he asked, can you explain the contents of this box? She went on to say, yeah, well, before we were married, my, my grandmother gave me this box. And she said, in marriage, you're going to have a lot of hard times. You're going to have arguments. And you're going to have times when your husband is so stubborn and set in his ways that he will refuse to listen to you. And rather than argue with him all night long, I want to encourage you, go into your bedroom and crochet a pair of mittens and put them in this box. The husband heard that story and it kind of overwhelmed him as he thought, we've been married for 60 years and she's only knit two pair of mittens and he almost teared up when he thought about it and then he looked at the the pile of cash and he said well well, well where did all this money come from she said well that's easy every time I crocheted a pair of mittens I sold it for five dollars <laughs> husband sometimes it's best not to ask <laughs> that there are truly some things that it is better for us not to know especially to know all the details of. But as we come to Luke chapter 1 again this morning, we're reminded that there are other things that it is good for us to know, and it's good for us to know all the details of. And what Luke has done in his gospel account is he has provided details for us that no other gospel writer provides. He has gone to great length, eyewitness testimony, interviewed so many, so that he could present to us this full account of the birth the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in doing that, he includes details like what we have before us. Details that are found in no other gospel account. Now surely we see the foretelling of Jesus' birth, but, but, but this specific narrative, this account of Gabriel coming to Mary, this pronouncement to her, it's unique to Luke alone. He gives us these details. And he gives them to us for a reason, that our faith in Christ might be strengthened. That we might have certainty concerning the things that we have heard and the things we've been taught. And so as I mentioned last week, as we go through this beginning of our study in Luke's Gospel, I I want us to ask some diagnostic questions. I want us to consider where we are in our faith today and how we might grow stronger in our faith in Christ. And so, like last week, I've got three questions for you in your outline today. The first one is this. Number one, how do you respond to God's grace? How do you respond to God's grace? 
when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about God's unmerited favor and goodness towards us. We're talking about God treating us in such a way that we can never earn it. We don't deserve it. It is unmerited favor. And we see God's grace on display in this passage today. The first place we see it is in the the place that receives this message. It's the place of the message of God's grace. Notice in verse 26 again. In the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that we read about last week. The angel Gabriel, this is the same angel that had broken that 400 years of silence from God and had spoken to Zechariah. He was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, if you had never read the New Testament before, if you would never read this account in Luke's Gospel, if all you had ever read was the Old Testament, you would be very unfamiliar with Nazareth because Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. That this was not a city of significance to God's people. And in fact, it was a rather insignificant city. It was a small town. And if anything, it had a rather poor reputation. And you may recall in John's Gospel as Jesus is calling the disciples, He calls Philip. And Philip goes and shares about Jesus with Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, when he hears about Jesus being from Nazareth, his response in John's Gospel is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so this was a, a lowly town. This was a town with a, a poor reputation. This was not a town deserving of this message from Gabriel. And yet we see God's grace and where this message comes. And we especially see God's grace in who this message comes to. We continue in verse 27. This message came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. We see here that at the time of the angel's visit that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now betrothal isn't something that we speak of today, but in the ancient Jewish tradition, it was one of three stages involved in marriage. Now the first stage was what you might refer to as the matchmaking stage. This is when often the parents would come together and, and they would make the match. They would talk about their children. So Joseph's parents and Mary's parents would have come together and they would have started to put this arrangement together for their children to be married. At some point, Joseph and Mary would have been involved in these discussions, these conversations. And, and then they would have made a, a legally binding contract with one another. Often, it took place at the synagogue and they actually would sign papers saying that this intention of marriage was bound. It was legal. It was going to happen. This is when there would be the exchange of the dowry. This is when there would be agreements. This is when there would be understandings of what they were getting into and who they were getting. In fact, it was very important in the Jewish custom to understand the history, the background of who you were marrying, to understand their, in this case with Mary, their purity. And so the next stage was a stage of betrothal. This betrothal period could last almost up to a year. And one of the primary reasons for the, the betrothal period was to ensure that the bride-to-be was not pregnant. Was to ensure the arrangements the parents made was based on a proper understanding that someone wasn't trying to 
pass off what they might consider damaged goods to someone. And so this period of time in the Jewish tradition was very important. It served a specific purpose. And then the third stage would be the wedding ceremony. We're, we're much more familiar with that. Not so different than our day. Families, friends come together. They have a large celebration. And in the Jewish tradition, the parents of the bride would host a, an enormous feast to celebrate. And so we're in the second stage then with Mary when the angel comes to her with a message from God. And notice his message. Verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And this is a verse, sadly, that has been misunderstood, mistranslated by many throughout the history of the church. Now, some take this passage and a poor translation of it to say that, that Mary was full of grace in such a way that she could bestow grace on others. But the plain reading of the original text indicates that Mary wasn't the giver of grace. Mary was the recipient of grace. That she was favored by God, meaning God had showed favor to her. God was showing grace to her. Grace is unmerited favor. Now we certainly see a picture in this text and in other passages of Mary's faithfulness, of her response to the Word of God and her belief in the Word of God. And we don't want to diminish that. But at the same time, we don't want to say things about Mary that the Scripture doesn't say. And what the Scripture clearly does say is that God in His grace and His sovereign plan for Mary's life, He is bestowing on her goodness and grace. That's what that greeting emphasizes. Gabriel goes on to tell her what this goodness and this bestowal of grace is going to yield that that she's going to have a son. And that her son's name would be Jesus. And that her son would be great. That her son would be the Messiah. There's language in this pronouncement that goes right back to Messianic promises. And Mary, as a, a young Jewish girl, she would be familiar with these promises. And so she would fully understand what was being communicated to her. That this son and this Language about him indicated he would be the Messiah, but Gabriel makes it clear he would be the Son of God. He would reign on the throne of his father David. He would reign for all eternity. And so notice, Mary's response to these things is, is not one of unbelief. It's more one of curiosity. As she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, there's a parallel here between this passage and the one we looked at last week. There's a parallel in how the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, comes to Mary. There's a parallel in how uh, they give a message. There's a parallel in even what that message is about, that, that one who shouldn't be having children, uh, like an aged barren Elizabeth or a young virgin Mary, that neither one of them should become pregnant. And yet Gabriel's message is that they both would. There's a lot of parallels, but there's also a very clear difference. And the difference is in how each of these people respond to this message. Because Zechariah, clearly in his response, there's unbelief. He says, how can I know this? Not meaning he believes, but he wants to know the details. But the indication is he doesn't believe because Gabriel says to him, because of his unbelief, now he's going to be mute until the child is born. But that's not the case with Mary. When she says, 
how will this be? She's essentially saying, I, I believe, but how's this going to come to pass? Because I'm a, a virgin. I'm in this betrothal period where it's to be made evident to Joseph and evident to everyone else that I'm indeed a virgin. So how is this going to come to pass? She believed it would happen. She just didn't understand. And it's that response of belief that I think we should consider when we think about our own lives and how we respond to the grace of God. Because you see, God doesn't just give a message of grace to Zechariah and a message of grace to Mary. Friends, God gives a message of grace to each and every one of us through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that message is this, that you and I were born sinners. Where we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. We're not having a contest this morning to see who's the worst sinner. We're not talking about degrees of sin. We're speaking plainly about what the Scripture says, which is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that sin, Romans 6.23, the wage, what we've earned is death. What we've earned is the wrath of God. That's what we deserve. But God has shown us grace. Romans 5.8, he, he demonstrates His love to us. He demonstrates this grace to us. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That this messianic promise comes to fruition. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross. He dies in your place and in my place. And then He conquers sin and death and He's raised from the dead. This is the grace of God. But it's not just a message of grace that's shared with us. It's a message of grace that requires a response. Just as we see Zechariah respond and we see Mary respond, the Scripture calls every one of us to respond to this message of grace that God has given us. Romans chapter 10, we, we hear and read and learn about that response. It says, if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. And friends, what this means is we, we swear our allegiance to King Jesus. I hope you understand this morning, I, I, I'm not asking for you to admire Jesus. I'm not asking you this morning to, to think a little bit more highly of Jesus. What, what I'm asking you, what God's asking you, and what God's asking me is for us to bow our knee to King Jesus. For us to swear allegiance to Jesus. For, for, for the will of God revealed through His Word and through His Son to be preeminent in our lives. Where we say no to our flesh and no to our desires. And we say yes to whatever it is He calls us to. That is the response to His grace that He requires of us to be saved. The question is, how do you respond to His grace? How have you responded to His grace? That's the first question we have before us in this text. The second is this. Do you trust in God's sovereign plan? When we speak of the sovereign plan of God, we speak of a Creator who is at work in the lives of His creation from beginning to end. We speak of, of a sovereign God who is in control. And in His control, in His plan, the question for us is, do we trust in Him? And the plans He has for us. 
And we see here a picture of trust from Mary. She believes, she just doesn't understand how this is going to happen, how she's going to have a child since she's a virgin. So Gabriel explains. Verse 35, it says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel says these things are going to come to be through miraculous means that involve the the Holy Spirit of God overshadowing you. And, And saying this to her, he uses familiar language that we find throughout the Scripture. We, we see a picture of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit not only present at creation, we see the Spirit overshadowing the waters of the earth. Exodus chapter 40, when God rescues His people out of their slavery in Egypt as they're on their journey towards the promised land, we see the Spirit overshadowing the tabernacle in that cloud of glory. And then as we continue in Luke's Gospel, in just a couple of chapters, we come to Luke chapter 3, where there at the baptism of Jesus, we see the Spirit at work overshadowing and anointing Christ in His earthly ministry. And then as we see that the resurrected Christ giving His promise to the church. Acts chapter 1, we see the promise that the church indeed would overshadow the church, that the Spirit empowers us, the church, to take the message of the Gospel to the nations. Friends, from beginning to end, we see this same work of the Spirit. One commentator I read said it this way, the Holy Spirit has been overshadowing God's people from the very beginning, working with the Father and the Son for our salvation. And friends, that same Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary, I pray, is at work in your life and in my life right now. I pray that for some of you, that same Holy Spirit in this very moment is convicting you of sin. It is opening up your eyes to see and your ears to hear what you've not seen and heard before. That you might respond in repentance and in faith to His grace and the Gospel of His Son, Jesus. We see this work of the Spirit and as it's described to Mary, notice she, she doesn't ask for a sign. She, she doesn't say like Zachariah, well, how can I really know this? And yet God in His grace, he, he gives her a sign. He said her relative Elizabeth, who's barren, and as her husband put it, advanced in years. She's six months pregnant. And Gabriel is basically saying, God is able to open wombs that should not be opened. And just as God has worked in your relative Elizabeth's life, He's about to work in your life. Why? Verse 37, because nothing is impossible with God. Friends, do you believe that this morning? That nothing is impossible with God. I was thinking just the other day about some songs that get stuck in our minds. We we had different CDs we would play. If you don't know what a CD is, you can look that up later. But we had CDs we would play in our kids' room and these devices that were large and played CDs. And so one of those CDs had these uh, kid songs on it, uh, praise songs, hymns, and, and over and over and over again, the same lyric. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I may forget 
most of what I've ever learned, those lyrics will be stuck in my mind. And that's a good thing. Because friends, guess what? Our God is so big. And our God is so strong and so mighty. There is absolutely nothing our God cannot do. The question is, do you believe that today? Do I believe that today? Do we believe that our God, that the the God who speaks to Mary, the God who says to this virgin, you will indeed have a child through miraculous means. Do we believe? That there's nothing our God cannot do. That there's no sin He cannot forgive. That there's no relationship He cannot reconcile. That there's no need He cannot meet. That there's no grief He cannot comfort. That there's no sinner He cannot save. Do we believe that this morning? And not only that, do we believe that this God who can do the impossible. Do we trust in Him even when He doesn't do the impossible? Meaning, when we ask God and pray to God and call out to God for something that we know He can do because He can do all things and He doesn't do them, are we still willing to trust in Him? Are we still willing to follow Him? Believing God can do the impossible doesn't mean God will always do the impossible. And the question in those moments is, will we still trust in Him and follow Him? Some of you know the name Joni Erickson Tata. She's had a a phenomenal ministry, but that ministry has come through great suffering in her life. She's 72 years old now, but when she was 17 years old and healthy and athletic and had a whole life in front of her, she was in a tragic accident. She dove into a lake and she was paralyzed from the neck down. She would spend the rest of her life up until now confined in a wheelchair. She would pray and pray and pray and ask God to bring healing and God has not brought that healing. In fact, He's brought more suffering. She has suffered for decades with chronic pain. She suffered through cancer. She suffered through various sicknesses. She's been close to death many times. And yet she continues to trust in God. I was reading just this week an account the author was sharing about Hearing her talk, this is what he wrote. Once I heard Joni give a talk in which she shared her belief that suffering fits in God's plan for our lives. From the confines of her wheelchair, she said, sometimes God permits what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Sometimes God permits what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Friends, God has a purpose for our pain. He has purpose and a plan for our suffering. We're reminded of that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things, not just the good ones, not just the, the touchdowns, not just the celebrations, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God is working all things for His purpose. The question is, do you trust in Him? Do you believe that He indeed will do that? And you may be wondering, well, how, how does this relate to Mary? We, we aren't seeing this picture of suffering here. We, we see a picture of good news, even great news coming to her. She's responding in faith. 
Well, that brings us to our third question, which is this. Are you willing to follow the Lord no matter what the cost? Are you willing to follow the Lord no matter what the cost? Gabriel tells Mary how all these things will come to pass. And her response is this in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, I'm not sure that we appreciate the gravity of that response. I think sometimes we just go right over it, but I want you to stop and consider what this means for Mary. What she is saying when she says, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me, let it happen to me, let these things play out according to your word. That This means that Mary was willing to give up quite a few things. For example, think, think of the, the stage of marriage she is in right now. She is betrothed to be married to Joseph. One of the primary reasons for betrothal was to do what? To make it evident that the bride-to-be was not pregnant. And yet now the, the message from God to her is you are going to become pregnant. And with that pronouncement and the acceptance of it, she's basically saying she's willing to give up Joseph. Because Joseph, in learning of her pregnancy... I would imagine she thinks there's really no hope for that relationship. It's well within his rights to publicly shame her, to have the community stone her to death. It's within his rights to put her away quietly, which is exactly what he intends to do as we follow the other gospel accounts. When he hears the news of her pregnancy, he's not going to enter into this marriage to her. Not until he receives a message from God. And Mary, in this moment, in this response, she is willing to give up Joseph. Think of that for a moment. Now, a young bride to be, preparing her whole life of what this life will be like, now entering into this, this covenant arrangement with Joseph, now looking forward to being Joseph's bride and to having children with him and raising a family with him. And now, as she hears God's word and says, I will follow your word. She's willing to let go of all of that. And not just Joseph, she's willing to give up her family. I mean, imagine how her parents, her family might respond to this news. They, of course, would wonder how this happened. They would look to their daughter and imagine she had not been faithful to the Word of God. She would not been faithful to her promise to Joseph. That This great wedding feast and celebration that they had looked forward to giving and she had looked forward to receiving, now that's likely not going to happen. But Mary's willing to give that up. She's willing to give up her reputation. When we talked last Lord's Day about how others must have looked at Elizabeth and her barrenness and how there was great shame with that and how she was probably mocked by many. Now we see Mary, and in this culture, for her during betrothal to become pregnant, the community was within their legal rights to stone her to death, to shame her, and at the same time seek to bring honor back to Joseph. The community would not embrace her. She's willing to give all this up. She's willing to give up her very life. Again, the, the law allowed for her to be killed as an adulteress for being pregnant during this betrothal period. I'm not sure that we consider the full weight of what this meant for Mary in this moment. She was not given assurances by Gabriel 
concerning any of these things other than Jesus would be born. And yet she says yes to God and yes to God's will and yes to God's plan and yes to following the Lord no matter what the cost. Friends, are you willing to follow the Lord today no matter what it might cost you? Because it will cost you. If you live according to this Word and according to the call of the Gospel, it will cost you relationships. It may cost you family. It will cost you your reputation. And friends, for many in our world today, it costs them their life. Jesus in Luke 9 says this, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what it might cost? I want to leave you with a story of one who was faced with this question. A young man named William Borden. In 1904, he was graduating from high school. And like many even today, when they graduate high school, they they get a gift from their parents. His was rather extravagant. Uh, His parents gave him a trip around the world. And they were able to do this because they were the Borden family. It was the Borden Dairy Empire. You probably still see Borden uh, things at the grocery store when you go in the dairy section. Well, this family goes back quite a ways and they were insanely wealthy and William was the heir to all of this. But William had experienced a change in his life. His father wanted him to go into the family business. His, his mother had a different influence on him. They lived in Chicago and, and Moody Church, which is still thriving in Chicago today. His mother went to that church, heard the Gospel, responded in faith, and then began taking her son there. And young William trusted in Jesus. And as soon as he became a Christian, he felt this call to tell others about Jesus. And so when he took this trip around the world as a high school graduate, God burdened him with the lostness of what he saw, especially in the Far East and in Asia. And so from his travels and from there, he wrote back home saying, I've decided to give my life for the mission field. Around that same time, he wrote two words in his Bible to remind him of this Gospel call. He simply wrote, no reserves. He would have no reservations about this call God had placed on his life. Well, his father had other plans for him. He wanted him to come home and to study, and so he honored his father's request. He went to Yale University. He was one of the star students there. But this call on his life did not go away. It only intensified. When he began his freshman studies at Yale, he started a small prayer group that eventually would transform campus life there. By the end of his freshman year, 150 students were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time he was a senior, 85% of the student body were attending. After he graduated Yale, he had so many business opportunities, but he remained committed to the call God had put in his life to preach to people who were unreached overseas. And to remind him of this call, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath no reserves, he wrote no retreats. That there would be no escaping this call. And so he went to seminary. He studied. After his seminary studies, he 
traveled on the way to China, to the Far East, to take the gospel to the nations. There was a considerable amount of language study he would need. And so along the way, he stopped in Egypt for language studies to prepare for a lifetime of ministry to Muslims in China. But he never made it there. And to the shock of the world, he became ill. He contracted spinal meningitis. And at the age of 25, he died. Never having made it to that mission field. And you've got to understand that the Borden family had great status and celebrity in that day. Newspapers around the world would write about them. And so they, they chronicled this. They, they saw this as, as the waste of William's life. He had such potential in the business world. And yet he would die in a secure place, never having fulfilled this call he felt he had on his life. But it's almost as if William knew this is what they would write about. And so later in looking through his Bible, there were two more words scribbled in. Under no reserves and no retreats, he simply wrote, no regrets. Friends, at the end of my life and the end of your life, what two words are you going to write in your Bible? I guarantee you this. If you will live a life sold out for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you will have no regrets. You will live for His glory. And that's the call that He's placed on all of us. The question for us today is will we answer that call? And will we respond in faith, belief, and repentance? I pray that I will and pray that you will. So let's respond together now to God's Word. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we prepare to respond to God's